You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast today, Jerry Boschman. Jerry is the author of Hope Beyond Hell, The Righteous Purpose of God's Judgment, and Hope for All, 10 Reasons Why God's Love Prevails. Jerry is also the convener of the Hope for All Connection Group. Welcome, Jerry, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Oh, what an honor to be here. Thank you, David, for inviting me. Well, you're, you're most welcome. I'm glad to get to talk to you. Why don't we start out, and can you just tell us a little bit about the books that you've written, and then maybe we can talk some about the uh, Hope for All Connection Group. Sure. Um, well, somewhere around 2004 or so, I, I got inspired to document the reasons why I had hope beyond hell. And uh, so as I documented that, because a friend challenged me about um, helping to uh, teach this to, to others in the community. Uh, so I ended up putting together my thoughts and it ended up uh, eventually, as I, I want to share this with my family and different ones and ended up being a book that I published in 2006. Um, I was, uh, it seemed to be well received by many and to the point where we had a contributor from California donate mm, quite a lot of money. And so we were able to make thousands of copies, and distribute them, distribute them throughout the country in different ways. And so the book really got a good start. And uh, so I can't tell you how many thousands of copies are out there and how many people have read the book. But a lot of times people tell me they find it in used bookstores. So, um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, so and then word of mouth. And, you know, we haven't advertised at all. Yet, um, I can't, I just have no clue. I have no analytics, but I, I do know that I, I'm amazed that, uh, plus, you know, we, we put it up on Amazon for basically cost and even uh, like the Kindle is free, um, that kind of thing. So people are able to access the, the content easy enough, both books actually. Uh, well, on, on, on Amazon, I think the Kindle is like a dollar for the whole for all. Um, but um, I'm excited. We have it on our website and people can just read both books there, download them all in PDF. So this is not a money-making venture for us at all, but um, it's about getting the message out because um, I personally am excited. Um, the message of the victorious gospel, Christian universalism, larger hope, hope for all, however you want to um, describe it, um, is the gospel of great joy for all people that the angel talked about uh, at the birth of Jesus. And I think, it, I think it's going to transform Christianity going forward, especially in our witness to the world. I'm excited. Thank you. I just I just love talking about this. Well, it's, it's, it was exciting for me to find out that this was a message um, that was more widely understood in the early centuries of the church. So it's not like we're yeah. inventing something new here, right? This is something right. that's been, that's that, right. it's almost like something we've forgotten rather than something yeah. new that we're inventing. So you wrote the first book, Hope Beyond Hell, and then you wrote mm -hmm. another book. Yeah, the second book was, uh, uh, I wrote it in uh, 2008. I published it in 2018. So that's uh, like uh, from 2006 and 12 years later. I wanted a book that was short, concise, 
that uh, that had I have 50 pages of endnotes instead of putting the more complex uh, things in the actual body of the text. I wanted a person to be read it to read it uh, the average person to read it um, very relatively quickly, just a couple of evenings kind of thing. So right. uh, a, a lot of time I can't tell you the time that went in that was invested in, in writing the smaller book. The, the smaller book is 39% the size of the other book. And I tried not to just be a repeat of the content. I tried, in fact, I tried to avoid the content that's in the, the other book so that uh, a person can really benefit from both. I, I look at Hope for All as like a primer or a primer, if you will. Uh, it's, a, it's an easier introduction to the topic um, and Hope Beyond Hell, um, the righteous purpose of God's judgment uh, kind of uh, goes into it just it just fills in a lot of the gaps. Besides, um, the, the the title "Hope Beyond Health" and, and my I want this this book. I wanted my message to read Christian community at large. And twelve years ago, the idea of universalism was more heretical sounding than it has become 12 years later. It, it's becoming more and more something that people are actually starting to even think about. Whereas mm -hmm. back then, a lot of people would just dismiss it at the gate. But, oh, you know, not even give it a second thought. That's changing. and It's changing fast. And I'm excited. But anyway, I wanted a book that basically did the same thing with a different title. And I like Hope for All. Ten Reasons God's Love Prevails. Because I don't think that is going to be a barrier to people. And and I'm finding that it's right. Well, you, one of the things, too, that you have felt led to do is to start a, a group on the Internet that can meet over a Zoom meeting. Uh, Hope for All Connection Group is what you're calling it, I believe. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's vital. Jesus said, where two or three come together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And to to believe in Jesus, and particularly if your concept of Christ, your concept of the Father, is one in which really surpasses the the average concept that most Christians have, and you start talking about it, um, you find yourself a lot of times isolated because people uh, may not accept it and you feel alone a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And so I have found that people that come into this understanding of Jesus really need to be able to connect with others who share their same, um, their same cherished value of, of their faith. So it, it's essential. And, and I, my goal is to see whole for all fellowships like we have just multiply. Not that we're controlling anything, but the, just the concept of, uh, of multiplication of communities exploring the idea of the victorious gospel. Uh, so, yeah, and, and I see it happening. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, I know that I participated in one of the meetings uh, that you had yesterday. And so generally what you do is you have some person that comes on and maybe shares a little bit, and then you have a conversation with that person. Is that is that how you generally have done it? Well, yeah, kind of. If we have a special guest, yet, they do they do um, continue with the mic for a considerable period of time. That is true. Uh -huh. um, but but very shortly thereafter, maybe forty five minutes later, it transitions into everyone is participating back and forth. Oh, okay. It's not longer centered on the one the guest speaker. I wanted to get right into the conversation, so I didn't do that. The... Was perfect. It worked out <laughs> great. Fun. People I, loved I, it. Yeah, I was just looking forward to the conversation. It was great. 
Well, I thought we could uh, transition now, and uh, maybe you could just start out by telling a little bit about your background and your growing up and your early experiences uh, with Christianity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I grew up loving Jesus from a child. I was raised Catholic, and uh, my mother taught me about God. And uh, In fact, I wanted to be a priest when I was a little kid. So, um, yeah, I, I just uh, I loved God, and I wanted to— um, do things to please them. Well, anyway, as I got older, and, uh, life got difficult, and uh, and I lost my mom at a very young age, and uh, things things uh, so went through a, a difficult period of time. I lost my faith as a teenager. Uh, came to a place by the time I was 18 years old, where uh, I was really uh, realizing the brevity of life. Even at that age, I was uh, aware um, that I would die, and that I loved life. I just loved life, and I enjoyed my life. I loved the things I was doing, and I and the, the idea that it would all come to an end was very scary to me at 18 years old. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to bed at night, and just looking up to the ceiling, and God, are you there? Are you real? As at that point, whatever I was taught in Catholicism by that time pretty much evaporated. Uh, I just didn't know about anything about. Mm-hmm ultimate destiny. I didn't know what to believe. I didn't know if there even was a God. And that's why I said, God, if you're real, reveal yourself to me. Well, well, anyway, um, I began to one day, uh, I saw a Bible in our home and uh, that my father had and so forth. He never read it, but it was there. And I just began flipping through the pages and I was, uh, I noticed a lot of red letters in it. And uh, so I thought, oh, not a lot compared to what was in black. It was just a tiny portion towards the end. Mm-hmm. So I decided, well, I'll better start there. Maybe there's something special about what's in red. So I read all the red letters. And, I'll, and then I, I ran across the passage in John eleven twenty five that says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And, I, and, I, and, 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 and then I believed it. It was like, yes, that's true. There was something deep in my heart. It, I just because I knew the story of Jesus, and mm-hmm. I was thinking about Jesus, you know. And and, and I was working on uh, construction roofing at the day at, in the day, and so I was up on a rooftop over our city, Manchester, New Hampshire, looking over the the city uh, from a high uh, point. I could see crosses all over town, representing on churches, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking about this town is the same across all over the world. There's towns. And there's crosses all over the place. And, and this Jesus has had a worldwide influence. You know, I was just thinking about, you know, the influence that Christianity had on the world and, and the story that, you know. So the whole Christian message, so I began to read, read the Bible, of course. And I began to tell my friends. And, uh, and, uh, and at that time, there was this movement going across the United States called the Jesus People Movement that started in, uh, in uh, California. Mm-hmm. And I ran into some of those guys because... Uh, my friend and I, we were seniors in high school in the day, and we wrote on my van, real peace is Jesus, and turned on to Jesus on each side of this uh, 840 Connelline van. So, you know, it was my idea that, you know, we needed to witness for Jesus everywhere we went. So my friend and I, the first day we went back to school, everyone around, you know, we're in the second or the third largest high school in our state. Yeah. As you can imagine everyone, you know, seeing this van with big, I mean, the whole side of the van was, was about Jesus on both sides, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where it started. And so because I'm driving around town with that van, 
uh, then these Jesus people guys that came over from California, they saw me and they flagged me down and I started to connect with those folks. And I don't know if you ever heard of a guy called uh, named Arthur Blessed, but in the day back then, he was going around the world uh, carrying a cross and, and just dragging it all over the place. And he came mm -hmm. to our town and he was like famous in my mind. And it was like being in the presence of Jesus when I was with this guy. We were kneeling down on the main street of our town, praying for the city. And uh, it was exciting. It was really exciting. It was ex exciting days. Well, anyway, uh, what else can I say? Yeah, and, and then from there on, I, I, you know, I ended up going into youth with a mission later in life. Um, and then so we became, I went to dental school in, Cal in California as a result of some of my trips that I made, like the Philippines, where I saw um, people doing dental work in the bush. And I asked uh, one of those uh, professors that, of the school if I could learn, you know, if he could teach me. So he said, yeah, come down to Manila and I'll teach you. So I went to Manila at the university and he spent two weeks with me and he allowed me to teach, taught me how to do dental extraction. So I went back to the mountains, began doing that. And then I heard at the school in Canada and I wrote to them. So I got professional training in Canada and moved there with my family. I had uh, three little girls and uh, so got training, went back into um, missions, went to Africa and there we started a, a, a clinic uh, called House of Hope. Interesting, the word hope would be there. Yeah. The House of Hope. And it was a medical dental clinic because it became a dental clinic after I, I got on uh, on the staff. So uh, they, it was only, it started out to be uh, just a medical clinic. But then the YWAM has a, a mercy ship ministry they did at that time. And their ship came to our port in Dakar, Senegal. So they had a construction crew that built our entire clinic over there. It was an exciting phase in my life. Uh, so I ended up training people who worked with me in the clinic. And so we were able to, uh, our goal in the clinic was to provide dental care in a way that um, people would sense the love of Christ. And apparently our reputation went before us over there and we got, Tons of people coming over every day. They would they would come in line. They would they would get there in the night, like eleven o'clock at night, and sleep on the sidewalk in order to be able to be accepted in our clinic in the morning. It was an amazing privilege for us to serve such needy people over there. Uh, so I was there for eight years, and even to this day, the clinic is still going on. The team that I train uh, are still there, and I'm hoping to go back. Uh, sometime um, probably in the next four or five months. I've been there about eight times since I left there in 2001. Well, that's that's quite a story. Tell me then how you get from that story to finding out about what you call the greater hope. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll, don't forget, we were living in a Muslim country over there. And uh, our goal was to bring this, the message of Jesus Christ to the nation. And it was not very successful. <laughs> uh, we spent lots of times. We did a lot, lots of effort and uh, very, very little fruit as a result. And I would look at the city and look at all the people and just, just think about, you know, all these people need Jesus or they're going to go to a place of everlasting conscious torment forever and ever. And, and the whole idea of everlasting uh, punishment never ever sat right with me it was something that anytime i would think about it it would cause me to question my faith i would mm -hmm. say to myself how can this be true how can christianity be true how can god have created a world where he requires that 
a person has to actually hear the message of Jesus, has to actually believe it, and has to actually then give up everything, pick up their, his cross, and follow him. And, 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 and it, you know, it was like you had all of these, and then only about 1% of the human race will ever actually get to the place where they qualify, so that God creates a whole world of people, and one out of 100 are going to get, you know, life forever, and the rest have to be punished forever. And any time I thought about that reality, it says, how can it be true? How can God have allowed that? How can how could he have set it up this way, you know? And so then the thought came to mind, like came to Peter, where else can I go, Lord? You alone have the words of everlasting life. And I, where else can we go? They, and, and when I saw the life of Jesus and I saw his character and I saw how he loved people and he gave his life and all that he did, I was attracted to him and his nature and his character. And I, I couldn't I couldn't not believe in Jesus, even though, it, it you know, uh, so I had just basically resigned myself to the fact that God has a hand tied behind his back. It, it just didn't make any sense. And so I just reserved, I, I resigned myself to the fact that God had a hand tied behind his back. He loves all men. Jesus died for everyone. But the way things are, are set up, somehow you have to hear that message. You have to believe that message. And you have to respond that to that message in the right way, whatever that is. Or you are going to end up in a place of eternal suffering forever, which never, ever ends. And for me, that was such a, it, it caused me to, to really question deep down inside. I would wonder, how can this be true? And, you know, it's like, but I had no choice to believe it because, you know, it. I just believed Jesus. I couldn't not, you know, when I read uh, Josh McDowell's uh, evidence that demands a verdict, Volumes one and two, and how he presented a case for the historicity of Jesus Christ, and how that he couldn't have been—he had to be who he was for all the various reasons. I researched it out. I couldn't, you know, um, ignore Jesus Christ. I couldn't ignore his death on the cross and his resurrection. So I believed, but I was perplexed. I was confused. I was in agony of soul over over this whole thing about hell, and my faith was weakened as a result. And uh, long story short, fast forward, um, one day I'm talking to a, a friend of mine that I had actually led to the Lord way back when we were about 18 years old. Mm -hmm. And he was a pastor at that point. I was a missionary in Senegal, West Africa. And I was just sharing with him, you know, about something I was uh, understanding about God. And he started to challenge me. And he said one day, why don't you look up the word aeon? And because uh, I don't believe God. Uh, um, um, judgment is forever and uh, so he and when he said that and I was tormented by that I said well how so because I respected him and uh, and uh, so he challenged me to do that and I did and I studied the word aeon and I came to the same conclusion that he did that the word doesn't support um, um, an endless an endlessness you know uh, it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, it can. It can infer that in when it's relating directly to God's character, but it there's much evidence in the Scripture that shows that in most cases it's it's uh, the word aeonius relates to something that's temporal, to the ages, age abiding, age during. Mm -hmm. 
And so in that sense, when I looked at the one passage in the New Testament that talks about, that, that actually says Aeonius Colossus, or been, which is translated everlasting punishment, actually means um, age-abiding correction in certain translations. And then I came to, wow, correction, the word Colossus can just as well mean collection, uh, cor uh, uh, correction as it does um, discipline uh, or, or punishment. Yeah. So anyway, that was the start of that journey. So then the whole thing began to unravel little by little from there as I began to study it more and more and more. Two two sources he gave me at that time to read. He gave me, he said, read um, um, the Savior of All series, series by J. Preston Eby, which I did. And then he gave me a little book titled The Restitution of All Things by Andrew Jukes, who was a a, a pastor in London back in the late 1800s. And uh, and I read that little book and it just made so much sense. It resonated with me. And then that's when I actually really began to embrace the idea of Christian universalism or the victorious gospel, blessed hope. In your book, Hope Beyond, Hope Beyond Hell, you talk about five pillars of support for the doctrine of eternal torment and you challenge each I, one of those. And actually, the first four. Oh, it's four. Okay, four pillars. That's okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay, so the the first pillar was aeon, and we already mm -hmm. talked about that. Is learning that the that the Greek word aeon is often translated as eternal in a, in English Bibles, but really it it really means mostly pertaining uh, pertaining to an age. Mm -hmm. um, there is that one passage in Matthew twenty five that people talk about. Well, if it if the sheep go into eternal life and the goats go into eternal punishment, well, then if the punishment ends, then the life ends. So how can you have uh, eternal, if you have to, we have to have eternal punishment because we, we have to have eternal life. Are you saying that then the the life, the life, if the punishment comes to an end, does that mean that the life comes to an end? No, absolutely not. Um, it seems like that on the surface. In fact, that's one of the chief arguments that people will raise. And they're quoting uh, Augustine on that because he was the one who, um, from what I understand, was the first one to state that. Okay, let me start with the Greek Septuagint. Okay, it's really important that we understand how the Greek Septuagint, which is a translation of the Old Testament, how it uses the word aeonius, which is the same word, which is the adjective form used in Matthew 25, 46. Now, the Septuagint is perhaps our most authoritative ancient document affirming the limited nature of Aeonius in Matthew 25, 46a, having itself become part of the inspired New Testament canon. Professor David Bentley Hart says it provides nine-tenths of all the quotations from the Old Testament, Hebrew scripture found in the New Testament. Scripture interprets itself. Consider the following ten passages based on the Septuagint. Circumcision is an Aeonius Olam covenant until the New Testament replaces the old. Mountains are Aeonius until they are scattered and collapse. Now, I have scriptures backing all this up. I'm just not quoting them right now. Jonah was in the fish for Aeonius until three days later. That's Olam in, the, in Hebrew. The field of the Levites is their Aeonius Olam possession until the new covenant ends their priesthood. Ruins are aeonius until they are rebuilt. Hills are aeonius until made low and the earth burnt up. An aeonius landmark is not to be moved until it is lost, destroyed, or otherwise disturbed. A priest makes atonement 
as an Aeonia statue until the priesthood is changed. He remembered the Aeonius Olam days, yet those days ended. Isaiah 63, 11. God's people stumbled from the Aeonius paths until those paths ceased and changed with their change in the law. So these are just uh, 10 examples of where if you look closely at the use of the word Aeonius, you see that it's not something that's endless, um, eternal in that sense. Now, Augustine, who knew little of the Greek language, assumed that if eternal punishment was not eternal, neither was eternal life, since both are cited in Matthew 25, 46. Did he make a valid point? It seems not. The early church sheds critical light on this idea in its creeds. Along with the Septuagint, the ancient creeds are an important authority in determining the meaning of the Greek word aeonius, normally translated eternal in our English Bibles. Dr. Edward Beecher writes, two of the earliest creeds use the word, very words of Christ, aeonius life. Other creeds throw light on their sense, especially on the sense of the word aeonius. This kind of evidence is as direct and authoritative as it's possible. It is the testimony of the early church speaking in her creeds. Note how the last clause of the Nicene Creed compares with the earlier Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed reads, I believe in the resurrection and the life everlasting, Aeonius. The Nicene Creed reads, I believe in the resurrection and the life of the world to come. Now Beecher continues, the earlier creeds introduce Aeonius to qualify life. The latter creed drops it and in place of it introduces the idea of the world to come as a perfect equivalent to Aeonius. This change was made without controversy or protest. This is significant as it reveals how the native Greek-speaking leaders of the early church understood Aeonius' punishment. If Aeonius' life meant life of the world to come, then punishment is punishment of the world to come. The duration of each is determined by God. Life is without end, while punishment lasts until it achieves God's purpose. They are both of the world to come. Of the world to come, then, clearly allows for differences in duration in the same passage. Now, Scripture also disproves Augustine. Augustine's theory is also disproved in three additional passages, which, like Matthew 25, 46, refer to Aeonius two times. In all three examples, Aeonius usages are not of equal duration. Now, for example, look at Romans 16, 25 to 26. A mystery is hidden for Aeonius, but then made known by the Aeonius God. Did you get that? A mystery is hidden for Aeonius, but then made known by the Aeonius God. Same word, just like there's Augustine's argument, right? It's right there, mm -hmm. same passage using the exact same adjective form. A mystery revealed in the future is not eternal, even though it is revealed by the eternal God. Another example is at Habakkuk 3.6. Aeonius hills melt away, yet his ways are aeonius. Hills are not eternal since they melt away, yet God's ways are eternal because he is eternal. Another example. Well, hold on I just a second. You know, that one, that would be an example of the Septuagint because you're quoting from Habakkuk. But now you've got the, so in the, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation. Exactly. Where, yeah. Yeah, so that's exactly. in, that, that's that's very interesting as well. Yes. Okay, can continue on. But 
but this is a very important piece of advice. I mean, uh, evidence for, you know, in to show why uh, why Augustine was wrong. Uh, and so the other one is again Isaiah sixty three eleven to twelve. God's people remember the onious days of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an onious name. The days of Moses have ended, yet God's name never ends because He is eternal. You see, onious is a relative term. Its duration depends on the subject and context. For example, Jonah and his entrapment in the great fish was Aeonius, yet his ordeal only lasted three days. And that goes back to, now that goes back to the Hebrew word olam. It was olam in the Hebrew, which gets translated in the Greek Septuagint, Aeonius, but it gives you an idea of of what that, what's going on there. Yes, and and it proves the point. Now, Jesus also disproves Augustine. Jesus, our supreme authority, defined Aeonius' life not in terms of duration at all, but as a quality of life. This is the only time Jesus actually ever uses this, the phrase aeonious life. And this is aeonious life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, John 17, 3. Aeonious life, then, is the life in vital union and relationship with God. Now, also, scholars disprove Augustine. Professors David Constant and Ilaria Ramelli write, when it aeonius is associated with life or punishment in the Bible, it denotes their belonging to the world to come. Interesting. And also, Professor R.V.G. Tasker, general editor of the Tyndale New Testament Commentaries, The Gospel According to St. Matthew, an introduction and commentary. This is what he said uh, about aeonius. Aeonius is a qualitative rather than a quantitative word. Eternal life is the life that is characteristic of the age, aeon to come. Similarly, eternal punishment in this context indicates that lack of charity will be punished in the age to come. There is, however, no indication as to how long that punishment will last. He's a conventional scholar of the day. And uh, when, when I read that, I, that blew me away. Um, Professor David Bentley Hart wrote, in the original Greek of the New Testament, there really are only three verses that seem to threaten an eternal punishment for the wicked, though in fact, none of them actually does. Hart adds, New Testament scholars as theologically diverse as Marcus Borg and N.T. Wright have suggested that translators might do well in many or most instances in most instances, to render aeonius as of the age to come. Now, this is important to me, uh, David, because this is what we see in the, in the Nicene Creed. This goes way back to the early church. And, this mm-hmm. is, and, if, and if they could replace the idea of life uh, aeonius with life in the age to come, that tells us how they thought about it. And and let's continue because there's a few others that I want to share. Well, and, and, and it, I think it I think it is good to point out that that the even the people that worked on the Nicene Creed, Gregory of Nyssa, was among those, and he was a universalist in his understanding of things. Mm-hmm. So he he understood these Greek words too. So when they were doing this, they didn't see that as a they didn't even think that they were doing anything strange. They were just using right. the Greek as they were used to using it. Yes. So th- to me, that 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 is so like. Ah, I mean, it it just solves that question. Like, right? At, it's, there's no way that you can take that passage 
to support everlasting conscious torment. Dr. Eileen Kieser, okay, defines Aeonius as time constituting the human temporal horizon. A Greek scholar William Barclay wrote, the simplest way to put it is that Aeonius cannot be used properly of anyone but God. Eternal punishment is then literally that kind of remedial punishment which it befits God to give and which only God can give. And then pastor and author Peter Hyatt, Master of Divinity, Fuller Seminary, explains, I, it seems abundantly clear that Aeon is a simple noun and should be translated age in English. Aeonius is an adjective, and in English there is no adjective that corresponds to the English noun age. It means of the age, but that leaves us with a question of what age? In scripture, there appears to be fundamental distinction between this age or these ages and the age to come, God's age. So fundamentally, something Aeonius is something of God's age. Yeah, and there's that passage in Ephesians 2, 7, where, where Paul even talks about coming ages. That's right. Mm-hmm. You know, so so I, that helped me when I began to realize, okay, well, there's something that's going on here. They have a, they have a different way of thinking about time as a, as a succession of ages. So what's being yeah. said here is in the coming age, some will go into the life of the coming age and some will go into God's corrective punishment mm-hmm. in the age. But they That's weren't right. thinking they weren't thinking of the word eternal the way we think of the word eternal. And right. so that helped me to understand how there was there was some flexibility as, as to how I could think about all of this. Right. And then, of course, is the word Colossus, which we could always, we can also look at, but maybe that's not the right time right now to look. No, at no, it. I think that's important because that's where we get the. Because what happens is that word Colossus got translated in English Bibles into torment, making it seem like the purpose God's what God wanted to do was torment, but the but the background of that word Colossus is not really torment; it's more correction towards restoration. Uh, well, I, I'll just be very brief on it. There's more I could say, but um, I want to quote William Barclay again on the word punishment. He adds, I think it is true to say that in all Greek secular literature, Colossus is never used of anything but remedial punishment. Thea's Greek lexicon defines Colossus as correction, punishment, and penalty. David Bentley Hart translates Colossus as chastening. He adds, the only other use of the noun in the New Testament is in 1 John 4:18, where it refers not to retributive punishment, but to the suffering experienced by someone who is subject to fear because not yet perfected in charity. The TNT defines Colossus as um, the New Testament, as pruning, a curtailment, a checking, restraint, a lopping off, thus a correction. It is important to realize that if Colossus is translated as punishment, does not rule out a corrective purpose. Let's move on now to the discussion about the fire of Gehenna. That's another uh, concept that that has to do with punishment in that that word Gehenna got translated as hell in the English New Testaments. And and they also translated Sheol as hell. And then they also translated Hades as hell. And anyway, that, that led to a very confusing situation. So could you just talk a little bit about about that whole situation? I think talking about Gehenna might have more substance if we look at it. I put together a short summary of key passages on the idea of, of the use of fire. And I think if we can see that there's a positive use for fire, 
Um, okay. Well, let's just go ahead. Yeah, let's and go that, ahead and that, go through that. That'll be a beautiful transition into this Gehenna, okay? Okay, um, go ahead. Uh, okay, God, uh, I have a list of scriptures, so if you want them, I, I won't slow down. I, I'm, I'm going to read this fast. God spoke to Moses through a flame of fire. He led Israel by a pillar of fire. Temple fires burned constantly, making atonement. God gave his law in fire. He answered Gideon, David, Elijah, and Elijah by fire. God was worshipped for his eternal mercy when his fire consumed the sacrifices. The Lord washes away filth by the spirit of judgment and burning. Isaiah 4.4. The Lord protects his people with flaming fire, a defense of divine love and protection. That's the amplified version. A burning coal touched Isaiah's mouth and his iniquity was taken away. Sin purged. God is the devouring fire, everlasting burning, with whom the righteous dwell. The righteous dwell in God's fire. We are not burned walking in fire, nor scorched by its flame, Isaiah 43, 2. We are refined, tested in the furnace of affliction, furnace of affliction. God's word burns in our hearts, Jeremiah 29. His word is like a fire. His throne is a flaming fire with wheels burning with fire. A river of fire flows from before him, Daniel 7.10. All the earth is devoured with God's jealous fire and then restored. I want to repeat that. All the earth is devoured with God's jealous fire and then restored by Zephaniah 3.89. The Lord is a wall of fire around Jerusalem. Her glory is Zechariah 2.5. He is like a refiner's fire. Will purify, Malachi 3, 2 and 3. Christ baptizes with fire. Jesus longs to send fire on the earth. The Holy Spirit descends in fire. Fire tries everyone's work. Everyone. We are saved as through fire, 1 Corinthians 3, 15. God's ministers are a flame of fire. God himself is a consuming fire without consuming our being. Faith is tested by fire. Fiery trials are caused to rejoice. Fire exposes everything and all the deeds done on earth. That is, makes truth known, Second Peter. Christ's eyes are a flame of fire. His countenance, like the sun, God's refining fire is an expression of his love, a chastening, bringing true riches, Revelation 3, 17 to 19. The seven lamps of fire are the spirits of God. The judgment of the lake of fire is in the assuring presence of the Lamb. There is a sea of glass and fire in heaven. Now, I think it's, we spent a few moments on that, but I think the average person just has no clue that how fire is used. And it, 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 it's even describes God's nature. God is four things is about his nature. God is spirit. God is light. God is a consuming fire. And God is love. And in all those four elements of God's character, they don't contradict one another. Okay, in love, in fire, he remains love. And in love, he burns the sin out of us. He purifies us. So, man, that changes everything when you look at, um, now let's look at Gehenna. Let's look at Gehenna fire. What is, what is that really all about? Well, it's really interesting. Uh, for me, this is a really powerful point. Now, I have a number of uses of Gehenna that I could go into and show you why it's not eternal. But 
one of, to me, the most important one is right at the outset. The first time that Gehenna is used in the New Testament happens to be in the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew 5. And this is where everyone, everyone coming into Christianity, everyone coming into the New Testament is going to go through this door. Everyone sees this. Nobody misses this. Okay. And I think the first time Jesus uses a word, I think he gave us a, a powerful clue right at the outset of its true meaning. Listen to this. Whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery Gehenna. Therefore, listen, look, note that word that comes right after Gehenna. Yeah, and that, and that, in most Bibles, that's translated as hell, not fiery Gehenna. Exactly. Yeah. But I'm just using the word Gehenna, which is the Greek word. But yes, it's, right. it says hell. And that Greek, and that Greek word behind that Greek word is the Valley of Hinnom, Gabe Ben Hinnom, and then so the Greek word is Gehenna, and then this gets translated into hell in a lot of English translations of the Bible. That's that, right. Okay, go ahead. Correct. So, it, but I I found it really interesting when I noticed the word therefore, the word therefore that came after the word Gehenna. And I said to myself, therefore, so what he's about to tell you relates right to what he just said. We're talking, he's talking about Gehenna. That's what he's talking. There's no if, answer, buts about it, okay? So Gehenna, therefore, be reconciled, make friends so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid the last cent, Okay. Now, notice that there's a metaphor used in that statement, okay, the word prison. So Jesus is comparing Gehenna with it, the word prison. And now, right after the word prison, listen to what immediately comes after. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. So there's no mistaking that the context of that section is about Gehenna. Gehenna is at the core of this, this reference. And in reference to Gehenna, Jesus is saying, yeah, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. So that's telling us that it's, whatever it is, it's not forever because it's until the last cent is paid. And, and if the last cent couldn't be paid, then what's Jesus saying? He, he was trying to bait us here? He's trying to deceive us? I don't think so. I think Jesus was actually inferring that, that whatever this Gehenna is, it was not something that was everlasting. It was something that had a purpose that would run its course. Anyway, let's continue. The word until means that Gehenna's metaphorical prison is not endless. It lasts only until the last cent is paid. And the word, therefore, directly, I said all that. Okay, now, even Jonathan Edwards admitted this prison refers to Gehenna. Now, Jonathan Edwards is the author of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He spoke a 1,700-word sermon to defend the idea uh, that God's holiness required eternal punishment. But that's uh, another. The point is, though, he acknowledged, and I have a reference there, that he did admit that this last cent, this prison was referring to Gehenna. He admitted that. And the way he dis, the way he explained it is he said, but it's obvious that the last cent can never be paid. That's how he gets around that. And I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I think that's a cop out. I, I don't, I, that's like making Jesus being less than totally honest with us. And I can't see, I can't attribute that characteristic to Jesus Christ.
Well, now that we've talked about well, one, one last one, this one's super short. Let me just say okay. this one. This is, this is in Mark 9, 49, 47 to 49. Uh, you're just going to look it up. Uh, math, uh, Mark 9, 47 to 49. Uh, it says, Gehenna fire for everyone will be salted with fire. It's, it's talking about the warning of Gehenna fire. And then it says, for everyone will be salted with fire. They're linked together. So you just go there and spend a little time and you can see that and say, wow. When I first saw that, I say, wow. You know, it's it's saying it right there for everyone will be purified with fire. Anyway. Well, one of the things also that I that I needed to work through was sometimes the the scriptures will talk about destruction. And you can think, oh, okay, if something goes into destruction, that must be mean that it that it's annihilated, that it goes out of existence completely. Uh, but I came to learn that the that the Greek word for destruction is apolumai, and that doesn't necessarily imply going out of existence. It implies direct. It implies a destruction of some kind, but not going out of existence completely. So, tell us a little bit about what you found out in your research about apolumai. Well, I'll just those scriptures that kind of relate to death and destruction here, but mainly destruction. God, first of all, let's let's go into this understanding that God calls into being what does not or no longer exist in Romans four seventeen b. God calls into being what does not exist, even if destruction were the end of existence. God will call the destroyed back into being as He promised. Two, God destroys the blameless and the wicked, Job 9.29. Destruction of the wicked cannot mean annihilation since it also happens to the blameless as well. Did you catch that? It says God destroys the blameless and the wicked. How in the world can you say that? God destroys the blameless and the wicked? What does that word mean if he destroys them both? Just food for thought, right? Job 9.22. Three, the righteous will perish. Uh, that Greek is apolumai. And, um, and this is from the uh, Apostolic Bible Polyglot. It's a Septuagint, okay? Um, the righteous will perish, Isaiah 57.1. Yet we know that the righteous will live. Okay, so it says here, Isaiah, the righteous is going to be destroyed. What does that mean? How, how can the righteous be destroyed? We know the, for sure the righteous are not destroyed. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's continue. Um, uh, verse uh, uh, um, 4, what I want to say, point 4. You, Israel, shall surely perish. Okay. All right. So he's saying, yet you, Israel, shall surely perish. As above, Deuteronomy 13, 18. Yet we know that all Israel shall be saved in Romans 11. Um, 26. Destruction then cannot be on a hopeless fate. God brings back the destroy of Sodom, Samaria, and Jerusalem. Okay, in Ezekiel 16, we see that, and your sister Sodom and her daughters shall be restored as they were from the beginning. It makes sense. It makes sense that, this, that the destroyed are restored since Sodom suffered the justice of Eonian. Aeonius fire, a fire that went out centuries ago. Also, the word justice assures us that the fire is limited and measured. Six, Egypt, though destroyed, will be healed and will return to the Lord and serve him. And that's, you can read that in Ezekiel 32, 2 to 10, and 
Isaiah 19, 22-24. The peoples of Moab, Ammon, and Elam are destroyed, yet the Lord brings back their captives. The restoration of all things means that whatever is destroyed may eventually be restored. Okay, Acts 3.21, the restoration of all things means that whatever is destroyed must eventually be restored. And, uh, and so we have a clay in the potter's hand is remade as it pleases the potter. The point there is that for something to be remade, it must first, in a sense, be unmade, that is, destroyed. Wineskins are marred. That's the word apulumai. So if, if wineskins are marred or destroyed, uh, so here they're, they're marred is, is the way the King James Version actually says it. Uh, oil is wasted, apuluya, which is the way the King James, again, words it. So, so, so you're comparing the word apulumai with marred and with wasted. Now, these objects were not annihilated, but worn and broken down. Okay, next point. Concerning the fate, they have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, which results in the destruction of the flesh, as next as seen next, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So here we have the destruction, the word destruction used in the context of learning something, learning not to blaspheme. So. We see, can you see with, uh, an important connection there? These two people shipwrecked their faith and were delivered to Satan, yet note, they resulted, they learned, they were corrected. Same thing on the next, the next point. Deliver such an one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved, 1 Corinthians 5. Okay? A sinner is delivered to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. Why? So his spirit, uh, to save his spirit. Destruction, in this case, led to salvation. Now, Scripture interprets itself. Let's look at, for example, 1 Corinthians 1.19. I will destroy, apulumai, the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. So here, it, Scripture does that a lot of times. It makes a statement and then makes it statement slightly different to amplify the first statement. And that's what I believe we see there. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. So, in a sense, he's setting aside the wisdom of the wise. Destroy here means set aside. Okay, or another one. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Do not tear down the work of God. It is good neither to eat meat nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. So in that passage there, we can see that the destroy, the word apolumai, do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Okay, destroy means to tear down, cause to stumble, offend, and make weak. This is not annihilation. You look really closely at that passage, you can see that that's not the case. It's not annihilation. W.E. Vine states, Apolumai is not extinction, but ruin. Loss, not of being, but of well-being. Such ruin and loss of well-being are, uh, are confirmed in the previous and following passages. Now, here's another one. Because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish, Apolumai, for whom Christ died. No mortal can annihilate another by knowledge or anything else, especially because Christ died for all. Often apolumai merely means physical death. That's the other part. So uh, another one. Do not work for food with spoils, apolumai. Spoiled food decomposes, enriches the soil for a future crop. It is not annihilated, but transformed. 18, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish apolumai without law. And as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. 
Contrasting these scenarios reveals that perish cannot be annihilation, since everyone experiences judgment with its measured consequences. Now, that's an important point because I really developed that in another. It, all of these, all of these factors, I think, are critical when you can put them together. When you understand God's judgments have purpose, when you understand that His judgments are always measured. Jesus said it again in the very outset, right again at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, "With what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with, with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you again." So, so it, it, whatever it is that's in judgment, it's measured. It's really important. So in the context of destruction, we have to understand that destruction is something that's measured as well. And there's nothing that can thwart God from accomplishing all his promises and the restoration of all. And passages such as these, when we look more closely at how they're used, you can see holes in this reasoning that destruction is something that God cannot change. Cannot, you know, Through destruction, he restores. Um, and, and well, I remember. I remember when I was uh, studying all of this, and uh, in Luke chapter fifteen, there are these three parables about a lost sheep, and a lost coin, and a lost son, and all of them yeah. are talked about being in a state of apolumi when they're when they're exactly. lost, but they're all still there. Yeah. And and then what's interesting is the so the son in the parable, the prodigal son. When he's away from the father and he's in the pigsty, he's in a state of apolumi, but he's still yeah. existing. Yeah. But then when he comes back home, what's interesting is, of course, the older brother's upset and the father comes out to him and says, this son of mine was lost and he is now found. He is he was dead and now he is alive again. So yeah. so that was really powerful to me. It was like, oh, well. Apolumi can even mean death. And then yeah. as you pointed out, you know, even even if somebody does want to make the argument and people want to make this argument that, you know, when God annihilates something, it goes completely out of existence in certain instances. Well, then, just as you said, I mean, God is the one who makes things out of nothing. So uh, for the God who is able to restore all things and the God for whom all things are possible then apolumi or destruction is a way that God ends up achieving God's ultimate purposes. Mm, amen. That Jesus said that God can make to take these stones and make children of Abraham through the stones. <laughs> How much more can he restore? He can restore and bring back those that are Well, let's destroyed. and I think this is a good point. And let's kind of wind up we'll kind of wind up our discussion on this point. We've been going for a while now, but this really gets into the idea of the sovereignty of God. And mm -hmm. I used to I used to not like the idea of the sovereignty of God because I associated it with Calvinism. And I thought, oh, well, Calvinists believe in the sovereignty of God, and they believe that God has sovereignly chosen to save some and not others. And I thought, well, I'm not a Calvinist, so I must not believe in the sovereignty of God. And then the more I started thinking about it, I thought, wait a second, maybe I do believe in the sovereignty of God, but the sovereignty of God to actually restore the entire creation and to restore all of God's children and to bring all of creation to a good end. And so that helped me to get, it, it, it really made me comfortable to think, okay, you know what, what's happening? I, I am a part of God's good creation and God is sovereign and God will not finally let me fail. And mm -hmm. if God, even God has to take me through some kind of destruction, 
God finally will restore me. It is not God's intention to let me fail or to let anyone fail. And when I started thinking about that, the sovereignty of God became great comfort, a great mm-hmm. comfort for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's so much, there's so much we could talk about when it comes to that, but maybe, you know, there, there's, first of all, we, scripture is very clear that God is not partial. Paul says it, Peter says it, there's no partiality with God. And even though Israel was, um, was chosen, they were chosen as a first fruit in order to be light, to bring the gospel to all. You will be a blessing, it says in Genesis 12, 3. You will be a blessing. They were called to be a blessing. And, uh, but, um, but just, just to a, a few comforting, really, that really speaks strongly to my heart about God accomplishing all his purposes. You know, we all say, well, how, how are evil people going to, you know, how is Hitler, how could he ever be in heaven? How could, you know, Stalin or anyone else that, you know, some of the most evil people in the world. But this is the deal. The deal is this. Let me read these passages for you. It says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness. And also says, all the nations shall be gathered. No more shall they follow their evil hearts. I will give them a heart to know me, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. Jeremiah 24, 7. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. I will put my laws into their minds. And it repeats that idea. And it also says in Micah, God will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. I would just like to say this. This is so important to me. And I and it's it's and this truth is really really um, affecting me powerfully, especially in recent months. What Paul said in Galatians three eight, we talked about. It says, "Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed.'" And he's quoting um, Genesis twelve three, where God said to Abraham, "In you all the nations shall be blessed." Well, Peter himself also, in one of his first sermons, or probably the first sermon in Acts 3, um, over in um, verse 26 says, uh, and he's quoting this passage, the same one Paul's quoting, except it's the uh, same book, but he's saying, he's quoting the one that uses the word families instead of nation. It says, it says, God, uh, it says God spoke to Abraham saying, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He said, all families are going to be blessed. And then he said, for to you first, the Jews, to you first, God sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. So what Paul called the gospel as being the blessing to all nations, Peter says, Peter interprets that to say, and and when he says, when he quotes the passage, he, he qualifies the meaning of the word bless when he says, for. To you first, God sent him to bless you in turning every one of you from your iniquities. And, and that lines up with what Paul said also in Romans 11.26 when he said about when he, when, he, when he said that all Israel will be saved for he will remove ungodliness 
from Jake. Jacob's another word for Israel. He's saying, so Israel's salvation is being defined by, by Paul. Here he defines it. And he says, in turning away every one of you from your iniquity. Same thing that Peter said. So it all goes down to the true meaning of salvation. Salvation is God transforming us in the image of Jesus Christ. This whole concept of an everlasting conscious torment, it is just not in the Bible. It's not there. It's an illusion. People read because it's just like that paradigm shift that we talk about. It's like what Jesus said, again, going back to Matthew, it, there's so much in that Sermon on the Mount that lays a foundation. Remember this one when Jesus said, the, the, the lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye is sound, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The darkness is this. The darkness is that we have attributed to God the opposite of what he truly is. We've made, we've made his, his light into darkness. We've turned his light into darkness. And, um, and, and that's why this whole idea of everlasting conscious torment is non-existent. It's totally non-existent. And the only reason it's ever found its way in Christianity is simply because we have misinterpreted the true nature and the true. Uh, we've taken the word eternal for aeonius, uh, and we made it eternal in the con in the context of God's corrective correction. Because somehow we were taught it came into the church. This whole idea of uh, which some say came from um, paganism and this whole, uh, came from other mythology about this whole thing about eternal consciousness. Anyway, I, I've said more than my share. Thank you for listening, uh, David. I, I could say a lot more, but uh, thank you. For well, the well, the thing that the the thing that is interesting to me about this is when I was growing up, I kind of I was exposed a little bit to Christianity, but I got around some evangelicals. And they were scary to me. And so I wanted to get away from those. There was something about they were all really excited about eternal torment and fires burning forever and people going to hell forever. And so what I did was I went over to that part of the Christian faith that's, that was more gentle and loving and caring and compassionate and didn't really focus on that type of thing. And so I had it in my mind, well, once these evangelicals get on the whole hell, eternal torment, idea, well, they'll, they'll, they'll never get away from that. But then I started running into people like you who had, who, who had grown up in that whole tradition and even gone to the point of being a missionary and on the mission field began to have some dissonance about what this all really meant and started to, re, and started to rethink it. And so, you know, you didn't rethink this by giving up the Bible you rethought it by digging deeper down into the digging into the Bible, into the original language. And what's so excited to me right exciting to me right now is that all of that is available to everybody. Anybody that wants to go online and look up the Greek behind the English or look up the Hebrew, you can go and look up the Septuagint. You can look up all of this stuff now mm -hmm. and you can find it out all all for yourselves. Yeah. Um, but your I think your book, Hope Beyond Hell, was it's it's pretty big because it has so, you, you just put example after example after example after example in there and I found that I found that to be uh, really helpful so I I, I just want to thank you for your journey and for your books that you've written and for your hope for all uh, connection group and um, thank you so much for 
spending this time with us. And I want to encourage everybody to go look at look at the books that you've written and to and to get in touch with your connection group. Just, just tell me really quickly if somebody wants to go to your connection group, how do they how do they find how would they find that online? Yeah, just remember hope for all fellowship. That's all. Hope for all fellowship. And it's uh, the website is hopeforallfellowship.com. And uh, so we have, uh, you know, and hope for all, we also, hope for all um, connection is also part of that. Um, we have another, uh, another, mem- another member of our team that leads that element as well. And so it's all, we're all one family and there's different fellowships going on. And uh, so I think that um, we appreciate anybody that want to come and be part of us and uh, not part of us as, as like, we're not, you know, we don't want to set ourselves apart as some kind of unique, you know, we're just believers in Jesus who, um, who appreciate the victorious gospel on what, you know, or Christian. Right. And you can, and, and I found just in listening and participating in the group that there were, you know, you respected lots of different opinions just because somebody begins to feel like the victorious gospel is what they they're believing in. There's still a lot of different ideas that people could have about the atonement and about how long Mm -hmm. punishment works or how that works and all there's still, so there was still plenty of room. It's not like once you start on this way of seeing things that everybody suddenly agrees about everything. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And I think you do a good job of, of letting people share their different points of view and not trying to force anybody into just one way of thinking about it. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you again, Jerry, so much for spending your time with us. And I hope that people will get acquainted with, uh, with your books and your work and with your fellowship group and just, God bless you. I'm so grateful for the journey of your life and just the this the joy and the energy that you have. Uh, you seem to be full of that Aeonian life. And I think that's <laughs> a, and I wish everybody, if everybody could have the kind of life that I see in you, I think the world would be a much better place. Thank you, David. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.